Hello there. Billy Collins here, host of Even Baddies Wear Helmets, the podcast all about kids' telly and the brilliant people who make it. How have you been doing? We really hope that you're looking after yourselves, getting plenty of fresh air and fresh fruit. (laughs) And we hope that you're going to enjoy this week's episode, which is all about directing children's television. Uh, This week, I'm joined by Alex Jacob, who is an absolutely wonderful man with tons of experience. He's directed Casualty, Doctors, Hollyoaks. His work has been nominated for BAFTAs and RTS awards. But as is the even baddies way, we're going to speak to him about the fantastic children's shows he's worked on, namely CBBC's Four O'Clock Club, the ever popular Dumping Ground, and most recently, a brand new show for Channel 5 called The World According to Grandpa. There's a saying that you should never work with children or animals, but I think Alex may be inclined to disagree, at least regarding the former. So if you're ready, we'll play the theme tune and we'll get chatting. Alex, how are you doing? I'm good, Billy. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, It's an absolute pleasure. Let's just start right at the beginning then. So did you always want to be a director? Um, Yes, I pretty much think I did. From when I I decided that TV and film was going to be my career, um, I then looked around at what all the career options were. I'd grown up... um, with film and TV and theatre, because my dad was an actor. So in the holidays, I used to go and stay with him and visit whatever set he was filming on or, or you know, kind of tour with whatever theatre company he was working with. So I grew up in that environment and, you know, having looked at all the different roles going, um, I think probably in my second or third year at university, I decided that directing would be the one, um, mainly because I've never ever been in in a performance of anything without corpsing um (laughs) I cannot take myself seriously when I'm acting and so I decided that I shouldn't be doing that and actually maybe I just get the actors to do what I want and live vicariously through them and tell them off for corpsing as well and tell them off for corpsing (laughs) and, and try not to make them corpse myself which is something that I have done in the past and why was it um, TV and film that you kind of gravitated towards? I think it's just having gone through that student experience of doing student theatre um, when we all think we're rediscovering the world and reinventing the wheel and that we're all amazing. Um, mm. And then sitting through all these hideous, pretentious, awful performances, that, which is a stage we all have to go through. <laughs> um, but then having left drama school, I then started dating a drama student who's now my wife but then that gave me another couple of years of of continuing to go to some of these awful pretentious performances which makes me sound sound awful but 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 you know at six foot three which as I am squeezing into a small theatre space into a tiny seat and trying to sit through something uncomfortable for hours I just it really turned me off theatre um I love that your career has been in part dictated by the length of your legs. Well, if you can't sit comfortably in the theatre seat, <laughs> and honestly, you know, it, it's like flying Ryanair in some of these theatres where you just cannot get your legs in with, with my height. So I, I either have to sit off to one side or the other side, which immediately annoys the person either side of me. Um, 
yeah, so yeah, my, my career choice was dictated about by my height. Um, <laughs> you know, on set, there's more space. I mean, it's as good a reason as any, I suppose. Um, and, and you worked as an AD for a number of years before making the step up to directing uh, Hollyoaks and Doctors. How did you land that first TV job out of uni then after after this realisation that theatre was not going to be for you? Well, actually, uh, I actually got my first job when I was still in uni. Um, I had to do a work placement as part of my course. And so um, I did exploit nepotism by asking my dad to get me a work placement. And he was able to get me, put me in touch with a producer friend of his who just happened to be making a film, which I have to confess, I cannot for the life of me remember what it was called now. (laughs) Um, But I got a job as a runner on that. And then off the back of that, I actually spent my second year's summer working on another BBC drama um, and then just kept on getting offered work, being offered work by the BBC drama department. And from that, those sort of initial entry level positions, how did the sort of becoming the director come about? Um, so I, I very distinctly um, remember probably in my second or third year at university that, that there are two kinds of directors, two kinds of successful directors. There are those that have worked their way up and know what can be done because they've worked at every stage and, and understand the whole process and then they're the guys that just step straight into it and demand the impossible because they don't know that it can't be done. Um, and I thought, I don't want to be the guy that is demanding the impossible because they sound like a right pain to work with. Mm. Um, and so I just very deliberately decided to, to work my way up through the route, you know, through the, the route of being an assistant director. Um, my career goal was always to, to, to direct. Um, I put off making a short film probably for about 10 12 years I came up with loads of ideas but any time I came close to being proactive about doing anything about it I got another job or just put it off or just just found excuses not to and then um for various reasons I ended up out of employment which suddenly gave me a couple of months free which I hadn't been expecting and so I used that time to suddenly just turn around and make that short film, which got me a meeting with the head of BBC Drama North, who was Phil Collinson at the time. Um, and he said he couldn't re- he couldn't give me any work there and then because you know apart from that I didn't really have any experience, but he would recommend me to Hollyoaks. So. Um, uh, I, you know, wrote off to Holly, Hollyoaks with the backing of Phil Collinson and they they agreed to see me and they gave me my first directing break. And so the first children's show that you worked on then, was that Four O'Clock Club? So the first, as a director, the first one I worked on was, was Four O'Clock Club, yes. yes which yeah. is, I mean, it's I, I love it. It's a comedy drama um, created, well, co-created by rapper and comedian Doc Brown. It's kind of combining sitcom and music. Um, how did you come to work on that project? Well, um, so firstly, I have to say, I was a massive fan of the show because I have kids who are the right age to watch it when it first came on. So it's one of those shows that um, I would watch it with them and then I would sneakily watch it without them, you know, <laughs> to catch up. Because I just thought it was very, very funny. And the music element, the rap elements brought such energy to the show. I was at the RTS Awards in uh, in Manchester one evening. Uh, I can't remember the year, but 
Um, it's got to be about 2013-14. And I actually bumped into two of the, the, the lead cast members on that who were there. And I did a proper fanboy thing. It was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> right. I love that it was it was a genuine, um, I love this show. I really want to work on this show. And, and then it, it, it came to be. I mean, did you have any preconceptions about working on a children's show having not really done it before well I'd worked on kids drama as a as an assistant director um so I knew the ins and outs of um uh you know the health and safety aspects of working with children and the you know the the children's hours because there's limited how many hours that they can do um and also you know I've I've got kids um and I I I get on with children very well I guess because I just I'm a child at heart <laughs> um you know kind of hurtling towards 50 but still feel like I'm kind of 12 um and so I wasn't worried from that perspective there are things that make working with younger cast members a bit more challenging you just have to be I mean, you should always be socially aware of the language that you're using wherever you are, especially in a work environment. But but with an adult cast and crew, you can get away with the F, you know, with the with the mm. old F bomb here and there, um, you know, and and it, it's it's more acceptable. Obviously, working with children, you just got to be far more sensitive because they are more sensitive. Um, when you, for example, use humour um, to get through a situation. Uh, you might tease somebody over something. You have to be much more careful about that with children because they may not necessarily appreciate that you are joking. Um, mm. And so, you know, it's establishing the right level of communication with the cast members, um, especially bearing in mind that they range from, you know, 11, 10, 11 years old to, to 18. So, Again, there are different dynamics with the different age groups and all without being patronising because that's just something to be avoided at all costs because, you know, they might be young. It doesn't mean they're stupid. Mm. And they're there and they're working as well. They're and, there and to they're working. Kind of do a job. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but equally, it doesn't mean you can't have fun. Yeah, yeah. And, and Four O'Clock Club as well, I mean, it comes with those... I mean, as well as making a show, there's the additional challenges of effectively shooting music videos um, within yeah. episodes. Those ace scenes where the characters start rapping about homework, frustrations, kind of their relationships. Yeah. Um, how do you bring those sequences to life? I mean, beyond the, the lyrics, how much of that is actually scripted? None of it. Um, None of it. It's blood, blood, sweat and tears. Um, so the music videos in Four O'Clock Club are completely, um, it's totally, totally built by the director. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's quite simply it's not easy, um, and I think I think one of the, the most difficult thing is is genuinely communicating to the visual effects team and to everybody else what your vision is um, on effectively what's a very tight budget and a very tight schedule. Mm. Mm. And having the, I mean, it's yeah, it, it's not easy, but there's also the the freedom that you might not get elsewhere where you get that sort of you know so-and-so wrapped about the homework go that 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 um the ability to to come up and invent stuff and to rework and it just feels like there's there's a lot of um creativity and and not necessarily control but I suppose 
yeah, freedom, freedom to to have fun with it as well. That kind of offsets the the not easy aspect of it. Absolutely, I think that one of the things I enjoyed most about it is that it's meant to be funny. So mm. um, that really does give you your your imagine your imagination free reign to really really go for it, um, and and genuinely kind of being able to kind of go kind of do your break your ideas down, go to the producer and go, this is what I'm going to shoot. And have them go, yeah, that's all going to be great. Or, you know, there was a couple of times when there was ideas that I had, I can't think of a particular example, but there are a couple of like bits of music videos that I had knocked back. Um, but either that's because perhaps it was overly ambitious or actually didn't, didn't help tell the story. Because mm-hmm. bearing in mind that each rap also has to tell a story. It's not just about making the music look good. It's about helping move the story in the episode along as well. From Four Cut Club, the next uh, kids show you went on to direct was episodes of the much-loved Tracy Beaker spin-off, The Dumping Ground. That's correct. Um, I mean, the first series of that came out in like 2013, which is... Yeah. It feels bonkers, but you, the episodes you've directed have predominantly been in in the um, the later series. Yeah. I wonder what was it like to come onto a show that is already so well established and well loved. You know, how do you prepare to direct something that's got that much history behind it? Um, well, again, it's a show that I used to watch with my kids. Um, I, I, I very distinctly remember the first episode of the new series of The Dumping Ground because my kids were watching it. Uh, in the front room while I was cooking in the kitchen um, and I suddenly heard them both burst into tears so I'm like what's that what's wrong so I kind of run through and they're both crying because Lily's just fallen off the roof of the dumping ground and they they were properly properly really upset because you know Lily fell off the roof and she's really (laughs) hurt and I was like it's not real it's only television this is how they would have done it and so I said okay so I described to them how they would have made it look like Lily was on the roof, but it wouldn't really be Lily on the roof. And when it when you do see somebody on the roof, that would have been a stunt double. And so they'd have built the roof on the floor. So Lily was never really more than like a couple of meters off the off the actual ground. There'd have been crash mats all around. And when the actual person fell, that would have been a stunt double. Um and so like that really calmed them down. And then about three or four weeks later later, there was a behind the scenes of filming of the dumping ground. And they'd shot that whole sequence exactly as I told my kids they would have done. <laughs> and that really blew. They were like, my gosh, Dad, you really what? know, you really do know how they make television programs. I was like, yes, <laughs> I do. So then to be able to go and direct the show, go, yeah, well, I, I know how this is made because, you know, I guessed it all and it was right on a documentary. <laughs> um, yeah, I felt very, very, very smug. Um, so to be able to then go and direct it, that's, that is a proper honour because you know that show is an institution. It's been going for mm. um, nine as from Tracy Beaker, and now with the new series of um, My Mum Tracy Beaker that's just started, you mm. know it's a show that's gonna keep on going because Jacqueline Wilson's a genius author and much much loved. Um, Absolutely, and the reaction already. I mean, to to the new Tracy Beaker coming out. I mean, because it was. 
such a part of my generation's upbringing the, mm. the little clip that's come out recently with justine littlewood people yeah. are going they're losing their minds yeah. people are just like she's back it's everyone's just everyone like people in their 20s are just heading straight to cbc this week i think because they're yeah. they're absolutely obsessed um when you're one of several directors working on on the same series how do you ensure that you you capture the sort of dumping ground essence is there you know is that about conversation with the other directors how do you get that, no, that style um, right? i mean obviously you do talk to the, the the other directors i think it's very much about uh watching the show doing your mm. research um there's a series producer who very much will make sure that um you know that you don't suddenly start shooting it in the style of a you know Kira Kurosawa film in, in the <laughs> 70s or, or whatever which I'd like to see I know absolutely you know but then equally <laughs> one of the things that's great I mean so the, so for example the first episode of the dumping ground I did was a musical uh, episode mm. where uh, they would burst into song every now and again in a classic classic musical style which is something they'd never done before so um, you know, having my experience on Four O'Clock Club on how to shoot, you know, the music videos and make those work. Um, what I didn't realise was I'd have to do the arrangement as well in terms of who was going to sing what. Um, wow. So that was that was another kind of step up of like, wow, that was you know unexpected. Um, but uh, and so because of that, it it meant that I could really put my own stamp on the show. One of the nice things about Dumping Ground is that it's pretty much the same crew that makes every series. So um, the DOP that's been there for five or six years at least is a guy called Rich Marnie, who I've also worked with on Doctors and Casualty and um, what else? Dumping Ground. I'm sure, I've, I'm sure I've worked with him somewhere else as well. Um, so I know Rich very well, but obviously he's you know, having the, the DOP and and he operates as well being consistent it means that certainly a lot of the look and feel is always going to be is always going to have his touch on it because he's going to light it the same way he's going to mm. operate the camera in the same way um but then actually one of the things that they do you know they do look for is is freshness um you know they are quite happy for you to be reasonably experimental in in what you do um you know, so you can kind of do a whole episode handheld, or then you can do an, a, whole, a whole episode uh, where the camera doesn't move at all. You know, as long as you can justify why you're doing it that way. So, um, you know, and you you are allowed to get various toys out, like drones or or a bit of cranes or a bit of steady cam or something. Um, but having that foundation there of, of the people who have been there for so long um, allows you to, to have that that freedom to create and to try new things as well. I suppose it's a combination of, of those two sort of the old and new coming together. Yes. That's mm. yeah. That's about some sums it up really. Um, and it, it's interesting. I mean, because I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think whether I stuck to a house style. I mean, there's various things that I do uh, because it's casualty or because it's, dumping ground or because it's four o'clock club I'll you know I will definitely approach it in a certain way um because of the show that it is but then that's more about um celebrate embracing the freedoms that they give you rather than than considering the restrictions that you have if that makes Mm. sense Mm. um I mean so basically what I'm trying to say is that when you get to do a show like the dumping ground um 
they like you to bring new ideas and be fresh and be creative and 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 put your stamp on it um because at the end of the day the stories and the cast and the way it's shot with the with the lit lighting and the design and everything you have that consistency but mm. then because every episode is a different character story or you follow a different character through a certain adventure um and actually some of the storylines are so left field anyway you know so for, so for example i didn't direct this one um no, no, I don't think I did direct this one, but I really enjoyed it. So I like to think that I did was um, um, <laughs> when Sasha um, Annabelle Davies had um, uh, she had her Groundhog Day episode, um, and then there's another episode, and I genuinely can't rem- remember the, the stories. But there's a there's a haunted wardrobe gets dropped off at the dumping ground, and, <laughs> you know. So that and like I say, I had my my my, my musical episode, um, and then I had the the episode where um where mike finally left the dumping ground for, for forever which is a very emotional one to film because like i say you know he'd, he'd been in the show um for 17 years that's uh connor burton you know he was in the original you know first epi- episode of the first tracy beaker and i got to, got to shoot his leaving the dumping ground and so because of the scale and and the the budget of that episode we had big prom scenes with 20 five main cast members and 70 extras and but still shooting it on the same schedule as you'd shoot a normal episode um so I had to find a way of shooting that that didn't compromise telling the story um but equally you know completed the schedule on time um Mm. so lots of scenes in one shot basically (laughs) I mean, that is just incredible to think about as well. The idea that, you know, someone can be on that show for 17 years and the 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 consistency in the family. I mean, like I said, like some of the kids have been on it for, for most of their, their childhood and teenage years. I was watching yeah. an episode um, about Tyler and Jodie's relationship and they're having quite a mature uh, conversation about whether or not they should be boyfriend and girlfriend. And it sort of flashed back to to earlier seasons where, I mean, his voice hasn't dropped and she's kind of like four foot. Um, I mean, it feels like quite a unique experience to get to work on a show where the cast have grown up together. And I wondered what that's like as a director to come into that group. You know, presumably they're all pretty comfortable with each other. Does that make things any, I mean, easier or, or does it just sort of speed things along? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> yes is my answer so basically when you are working um when you come into an environment where there's an ensemble cast um who've been together for a very long time and it doesn't matter if it's just the kids because you get the same one casualty or on it on any of the soap operas um it's it's nice because you have those there is a familial comfort and everything it does mean sometimes that they feel can forget that they're there to work and they can just be chatty, chatty, chatty. Um, so you have to be able to find ways of coping with that without being shouty, for, like shouting for quiet all the time. Quiet, please! <laughs> um, you know, so I just you know, resort to kind of doing what teachers do, like putting up my hand in the air and waiting for quiet and those those little tricks, which they just work. And I use that on, on set with adults as well sometimes. You know, go, look, you know, people are going to keep talking this is what we do from now on when I put my hand up everybody goes quiet last person with a hand up gets a kick up the butt Um, you know uh, (laughs) I love that I love that that that, um the experience of working with younger actors does really kind of translate that there's certain stuff that you can pick up 
that just works with, yeah. with people when you're working with a crowd, when you're having to communicate lots of information to lots of different people. Um, that, that Yeah, there are little tools that you can sort of pull out the bag. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And also, you know, there, there are stuff that I do that I do with with adult cast that you know and, and crew that you know then I, I take over to working with children's like it's like one thing I love to do is is come and go good morning everybody which instantly <laughs> instantly gets everybody it's a, like Pavlovian to respond good morning Alex you know and so I del- you know after lunch like you know when everybody comes in the afternoon I'm like good afternoon everybody good afternoon Alex and it it, it, it always makes me laugh um <sighs> Like set as assembly. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. Um, but so, in terms of the relationships that that they all have, yes, sometimes there's friction. Sometimes, you know, they they, they fall out. The chaperones um, are amazing. Um, you know, I know they don't actually get the credit that they deserve, but you know, these are people who are in loco parentis and of children who are not theirs who can be very precocious who you know on the whole tend to be quite talented and reasonably intelligent and they've got to make sure they get through the tutoring they make sure that you know they, they get to set and just doing all things that they ought to do but also then have to kind of handle the fallout of you know a couple of the kids falling out or or having a tantrum and you know especially when the kids are away from home you know, Monday to Friday, because, you know, they'll come up and do dumping ground. That You know, they're up there for five or six months, mm-hmm. only going home at weekends. That's that's a lot of time mm-hmm. to spend away from home. So you do fall into, you know, a familial relationships with the people around you because that's what we all need as humans. You know, we're social beings. So there's, so the relationships that they establish are, are really important to them. And, and it's lovely because it means that when they come on set, they are mentally most of the time in a place where they're ready to to work and enjoy their work because they like who they're working with. That it demands an immense amount of skill and flexibility to be able to foster that family environment, but also to get the work done. Um, and most recently, you've been both director and producer on a new Channel 5 show, The World According to Grandpa. Uh, for those who don't know it, can you just tell us quickly what the show is about? So The World According to Grandpa is um, following on from the idea that your grandparents are a really important part of your life. So the, the premise is that we have Grandpa, played by Don Warrington, sitting on a sofa with um, one of his four grandchildren, um, and the grandchild will ask Grandpa a question, for example, why do cats go out at night? And Grandpa will say, I'm very glad you asked me that, because uh, I know exactly why cats go out at night. And then he will then go on to explain that cats go out at night because they're miners. <laughs> and what are they mining for? They're mining for jam. Um, you know, dogs, dogs mine for chutney, sheep mine for peanut butter, and cats mine for jam. Um, and so he spins this absolutely ridiculous yarn, um, which is uh, interrupted from time to time by the puppet rabbit Halifax, which sits on the sofa, which is voiced by Sally Lindsay, um, you know, kind of poo-pooing what Grandpa's saying, pointing out how ridiculous it is. And then at the end of Grandpa's story, uh, Halifax will say, you know, would you like to know really why cats go out at night? And then Halifax will give a, a genuine scientific explanation, which is that cats are crepuscular. Um, so they're most active at dusk and dawn. 
um, and when they go out at night, it's because they like to go hunting. I just, I love, I love that um, that Don Warrington is being corrected by a puppet rabbit. I, I just love that rabbits are such sticklers for facts. Is what sticklers? Absolutely. Sticklers. Stick- that's not a word. Yeah. Sticklers for facts. That's that's a word. A stickler for yes. A, a stickler. stickler. Yes, stickler. That's right. Yes. <laughs> it's like yeah. I I I think it's from the word stickle brick, isn't it? <laughs> And the show features both um, live action and animated elements. We go from, from like you said, the sofa into these, I mean, wonderfully imaginative stories. Um, as a director, how do you manage the interaction of those different elements? Um, with lots of crying, basically. <laughs> um, so it, it's it's really so, obviously, a lot of it's there on the page. Chris's writing is fantastic and very imaginative. So in terms of creating the world around them that I didn't have to do very much but what I did need to do was work out at what points they're actually going to interact with the world in terms of where to look and and what they're going to see and whether at what points the the live action is going to be integrated into the animation or when it was just going to be full screen animation um and so basically when we're filming we had uh, little broomsticks with tennis balls on the end and I'd go uh, at this point look over there at that point look over there um, uh, because we've all again this is one of the things that made the show very complicated to do is because normally making a show like this you would shoot you'd create your animatic do your storyboarding and create your, your, your rough animatic and then shoot the live action uh, against that animatic so you could say okay so they're roughly going to be over here or they're roughly going to be over there or you can when you're on the floor you can go actually that's not going to work we let's just change it up but because of covid it meant that uh our don's availability was was kind of taken away from us because he was filming in guadalupe doing death in paradise which meant that our filming dates got knocked right back which meant that we had to start creating the animations before we um, shot the live action, which is a very backward way of doing it. Um, So uh, it meant that I I had to be very, very prescriptive about you have to look here at this point and this, Mm. because the animations were already pretty much there. And although we do have some flexibility in adjusting the animation, um, we don't have the availability time-wise to do that. So technically Mm. we can do it time-wise, we've got to absolutely minimize what what we do and um so that made it it made it more challenging to film than you might imagine when you watch it because it is literally two people and a puppet sat on a sofa you know there's there's four five angles that we shoot and literally that's it it's a it's, mm. fit you know the cameras aren't manned it's a fixed rig shoot as it were but just the technical side of making sure the live action matched with the animation that we've already created was actually more of a um a head mess process than i appreciated it was going to be before i'd gone into it (laughs) and i mean there's all these different elements like you say like the um i mean halifax the rabbit who i i love deeply uh the wonderful sally Lindsay. Yeah. yeah How how does one direct a puppet rabbit? How many people are involved in in bringing Halifax to life? Not so, to ruin the magic. No, well, so um, if you watch the world according to Grandpa and you are under seven years old, stop listening now. Um, 
so basically, uh, so Julie is the main puppeteer, and she did the voice of Halifax on set. Um, and uh, Aisha operated the arms and the legs, if there's any leg movement. So um, Julie's operating the head and the ears and the eyes and, and, and the actual speaking. Um, uh, and so they basically, so the, the, the sofa is built on a raised platform um, and then it's hollow, the sofa is hollow underneath. So Julia and Aisha are hiding underneath, sticking their hands up through with the rabbit. Um, and actually, I have to say, Julia, the pair of them are a genius. Uh, they're a genius combo. They There was very little that I had to do in terms of, you know, actually, I think Halifax should be more pouty or, you know, I'm not feeling the mm -hmm. angst with Halifax. <laughs> Can I have some more angst, please? Um, uh, it really was just simple. Like, actually, can you kind of deliver that line a bit further around this way or a bit further that way? The comedy timing of the pair of them were just hysterical, um, and so I would, I would, sh I would shoot it. Um, but I very quickly realised that I didn't have to worry too much about what Halifax was doing because what they were doing was was comedy gold. Uh, we would do we do a wide shot. Um, of the sofa and then we do a close-up pass of Halifax um, generally without the kids on the sofa just because we need to give them break times in between mm -hmm. filming and um, because it meant that uh, we could take the cushion out from underneath Halifax and give Aisha more movement to to move the arms and get more expressive arm movement um, just makes it easy for them to, 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 to operate and, and get you know get a, a fuller performance. I'm kind of both very excited to know that, but also I feel slightly disappointed now that I know that there's somebody <laughs> underneath the sofa. I mean, I always yeah. suspected there was there was a human involved, but um, yeah. just really, it's real. Now. <laughs> um, and then, um, and I mean, and, and the other thing I have to say that we did was that uh, you know Sally and Julia had had a really long chat about uh, about how to voice Halifax. Um, before we went into filming, so so Julie very much did channel her, her inner Sally Lindsay, really, as it were. So that you know, so that there are times when I'm I'm watching the raw rushes before Sally Sally's voiceover has been dropped on, and I forget that it's not Sally because Julie <laughs> does such a good job of of being Sally. Um, it's quite a niche talent, is a really strong Sally Lindsay impression. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> one to bring out at dinner parties. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So the world according to Grandpa uh, also reminds me. We've, we've talked a little bit about this um, of of kind of grandparent centric preschool shows. I mean, CBB's Jojo and Grand Grand that's out at the moment is doing really well. But the, both yeah. shows really highlight the importance of intergenerational relationships and the role that grandparents play in uh, nurturing and teaching children. Um, and I think especially at the moment, given that a lot of kids can't see their grandparents, it, it feels all the more weighted in a way. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the role that that grandparent grandchild dynamic plays in the show? Um, it's it's fundamental, really, and I, I think it comes down to the to the fact that as a grandparent, um, most of the time you can hand them back, so you can you can fill them with nonsense, wind them up, and let them go. It's <laughs> it's you know it's 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 up to the parents to actually de deal with that. Um, I think I think one thing that that we do 
losing our society or our losing is is that kind of tight family community facetime and email and all that it's not the same as just sitting down and telling a child a story um Mm. being so being able to channel that into a tv show where you genuinely see the you know the kids embracing the storytelling um Mm. yeah and and some of the kids absolutely really really got into it there's um there's a new, there's a, a fourth grandchild which you won't have seen in any of the first eight episodes, um, Poppy, and she's the youngest of our grandchildren. She, she's only five, but when even when we were filming, you could see she was genuinely listening to what, to what Grandpa was saying. So her responses, even though they're scripted, they 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 come across as real because mm-hmm. she was properly engaged. And to find that a young performer that age who, you know, she's very talented, but actually it wasn't so much that she was talented that made her great. It's because she was just listening to her grandpa. Yeah. You know, yeah. Even though they're not related. And, and that's that's what's nice, being able to yeah. capture a child's imagination. It really does. It taps into that that sense of wonder and fun. It's yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, and and you've now worked on three incredibly solid children's shows. With that hindsight, um, what is the? I suppose what is the kind of the biggest joy? What are the biggest joys of of working on children's programs? If you if you were to speak to um, perhaps young directors who aren't sure whether or not they want to to work on children's shows, what would you say? That's a really good question. What would I say? Um, don't do it. It's a nightmare. The money's awful. <laughs> Um, and then when they go off to do something else, it's just more work for me. Fair, fair. <laughs> um, sneaky. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say um, I'm, I'm trying to think back to all all my favourite moments, and and all the moments that I think of are me laughing with the kids, um, just seeing the the big smiles on their faces. Um, it's getting to work with children. I suppose it's the same as being being a you know being a teacher. You know, working with young kids that. There are moments of absolute delight. That's that's what it is for me, particularly. You know, just you know, just the banter between takes, just being able to. I mean, I, at one point, um, there's a video I can probably share with you somewhere where um, I stepped off set to go to the loo whilst we were kind of moving on to the next scene. This is on on Grandpa, um, and when I came back, um, uh, Don was on set, but uh, young Sebastian, who plays Louis. Um, was nowhere to be seen and so I went and sat down at, at my desk bearing in mind we're all kind of COVID safe so we're all kind of two meters apart and then um he jumped out from behind the curtains scared <laughs> the living daylights out of me I swear <laughs> if I hadn't already been to the loo I'd have you know been very very embarrassed but uh, it was really really funny and being able to work in that kind of environment when you know when you could get away with doing that stuff like that because mm. You know, everybody feels safe and comfortable and, and they're having a nice time and you're telling fun stories. You know that the entertainment that you're making for other people is is good. Um, I know it doesn't quite answer your question of what I tell a young director considering working in children's TV. Um, you certainly wouldn't do it for the money mm. um, because that's rubbish. Um, I think you do it for, for the love of, of storytelling. Mm. And the fun and and I mean something that's really struck me hearing you talk as well is is the kind of references you've made to your own kids and them watching TV mm-hmm. and just how much these stories 
matter to young people as well. Like that reaction um, of seeing Lily fall off the roof, that the investment that's there that oh she's really hurt and I really care about her and I want to know what happens next being in some way involved in the process of, of bringing those moments to life that kids really do kind of respond to uh, just sounds like a, a privilege but also just so much fun it, it really is and I think I, what I find really interesting is that my, my kids when they were very little they used to say to me you know, at bedtime like right, would you like a story and my my daughter Holly when she was like so then Hannah picked this up as well because they're, they're, they're now like kind of 18 and 15, but when they were kind of four and two, you know, my daughter would go, yes, please can we have a story, but we want a story from your mouth, not from a book. Hmm. And so, you know, because I, I would just make up stories, absolute, you know, adventures with Holly and Hannah and just make up a story about some crazy adventure that two children called Holly and Hannah, not, not you, not my Holly and Hannah, two different <laughs> children also called Holly and Hannah, but they absolutely loved it. And I would make these rambling stories last for like an hour, um, you know, just because they love just listening to somebody else's imagination. And kids have such vivid imagination, but you can't imagine literally somebody else's imagination. So to be able to to have that given to you, it's weird. I mean, I, I was trying to think the other day, like, why do we love stories and books so much? And it, it is, it's just, it, it's somebody else's imagination creating a whole new world. Because you, you, we all have our own imagination, but, but but because we think of it, it doesn't seem that unreal or that surprising or that mm. amazing because, because we've thought of it. So we, I'm not really making sense here. No, I think I, the, 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 way in which somebody can go come into my world come and share this with me yeah. and it it be a complete sort of discovery fun the the chance to go beyond what you thought was possible is is just really exciting yeah i mean because we, we, we've always we've all been there where we, we've sat we sat watching something going oh, i could have written this this is this isn't anything different from from any kind of story that i would have told in this situation so you kind of, you know, yes, you might just enjoy it for the performances or the, the, the music or the way it's shot or or whatever. But, you know, there are times where you, where you just go, yeah, whatever. And then there's something, you see something that, that really is kind of exceptional or, or, you know, or just really beyond your realms of imagination. And you just go, this is, this is really, really good. And, and what's lovely is that it's something different for everybody so there's things that I go yeah this is boring and mundane somebody else will go no this is amazing because we have different life experiences it's also a nice way of leading into my very last question um which is the question that I ask everyone to to end the podcast what was your favorite tv show as a kid that's a good question uh because I didn't really watch a lot of tv as a kid um yeah long family history aside uh we didn't have a tv because my parents were separated and my dad was an actor um so seeing him on telly uh albeit very rarely wasn't something that my mom wanted to do also we mm-hmm. grew up on a farm in northumberland and we, we lit i i think we got our first tv when i was nine or ten but you know i didn't really get into like watching tv till i was like, like i say 10 10 11 12 probably so and then it was things like Dukes of Hazard and um, the A Team, and then I remember the very first episode of EastEnders. But in terms of kids shows, I kind of missed out. I have very vague memories of 
Bagpuss hmm. um, and Mr. Ben and, and things like that. You know what? I'm suddenly remembering uh, going down and staying with my dad in London and watching the press gang. Hmm. With, um, Is that the newspaper? Yeah, um, it's about the newspaper. So I want to say Dexter Fletcher, Nardis Wahelia, um, other names that spring to mind, but I might equally be thinking about something completely different. But I'm sure it was <laughs> called The Press Gang about you know, kids running a, a newspaper. Um, I distinctly remember watching that thinking, that is so cool. And what am I saying? Oh my gosh, what am I saying? Grange Hill. Grange Hill. Grange Hill. Yes, of course, Grange Hill. Because I, you know, when I was 11, we went to boarding school. So we were allowed to watch TV there. So yeah, Grange Hill. Wicked. Amazing. That's, I mean, Grange Hill is a good point to end on in itself. Yeah. Go for Grange Hill. Um, thank you so much, Alex. It's been a real, real joy to get to hear more about your work. And I really hope that you've enjoyed it as well. No, well, thank you very much. You have been listening to Even Baddies Wear Helmets. The podcast was hosted by me, Billy Collins, produced by Clodagh Chapman, with music from Finley Stafford, and our lovely logo was designed by Lucy Tiller. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find us on social media at Even Baddies Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Make sure you subscribe, share, tell your mates. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.